Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. It's more than just a podcast. It's a source of insights to keep you tapped into all things data-driven so that you can be the most informed technical expert in the virtual room. Listen in weekly to stay educated on the latest trends in backup, recovery, storage, cloud, and security. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and on this episode of Data Protection Gumbo, I have Seth Goldhammer, and he has 20 plus years in leading cybersecurity and network management solutions to market. He provided Roving Planet, an innovator in the network access control market in 2001, and served in product management and marketing roles for cybersecurity solutions at 3Com and HP. And currently, Seth works for Cloud Native Runtime Security Pioneer, SpiderBat, as the VP of Marketing. Seth, welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Awesome. I am excited to have this conversation and Maybe let, let's start with the with the spider in the room or the elephant in the room. Where, where does this name Spider Bat come from anyway? We're an interesting company. We're, we're a completely virtual company. The founders, Mark Willoughby, Glamour, Brian Smith, this isn't their first rodeo. This is actually their third company that they've started, the first being Tipping Point. And Brian and Mark, they're, they're from the Austin area. And if you're familiar with Austin, there's a, a the North America's largest bat colony lives under Congress Bridge. It's a tourist oh, attraction. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I remember that actually to go see. And the and the thing is, bats are they're a little bit of the hero in Austin, right? They're the they're the animal that's going and eating all the mosquitoes, all the bad bugs that you don't want to get into your house. So they're a little bit of this unsung hero. And so the name is really an homage to to these bats that yeah you know, the things that that they do and. And we see ourselves as spider bat. We're doing the same thing in, in cloud native environments, helping you to see the things you wouldn't have otherwise seen, clean up those things that you don't want to have uh, be there in, in your environment. Hmm, that's that's pretty clever. I I never would have uh, made that analogy. And I've spent some time in Austin and and do remember the bats hanging from from that bridge and uh, how scary it was but no it's not not really that scary but it's it's really interesting to kind of see to see that happen so i appreciate you clearing that up for us also uh, let's let's talk a little bit about developers for a moment and just also maybe you can give us your perspective around how developers are impacted especially when they write code and also how they may be vulnerable to to hacking Absolutely. You know, there is this movement called shift to left that's been occurring now for a while. And that's what DevOps, kind of the combination of development operations that, which is a methodology more than it is an individual, really kind of comes from this concept of how do we bring in, you know, quality assurance and testing? How do we bring that left into kind of the development pipeline? And with that same that same mentality, it was how do we bring security left into the development pipeline? How do we th- get developers to think about writing secure code securely? And what that entails is, you know, as developers are writing code, can they check for, are they introducing known vulnerabilities 
into their applications, uh, whether that's through their code, through their, the configuration of the cloud environments or virtual environments that they're, they're coding into. And these environments are increasingly getting more and more complex through microservices and containers. So we have a lot of abstractions, you know, virtual on top of virtual, right? So this, you know, for developers, it's, it really is this concept of thinking now about security very early in, in the pipeline, in the application process, even you know, in the architectural phase to ensure that we're, we're continuing as we're ramping up the speed of development, getting new features out, new releases out on a faster and faster basis, that we're doing it in a way that we're, we can ensure that we're remaining secure. That's, that's the goal. Now, whether we're meeting that goal, that's another question. <laughs> yeah, and you know, as you were speaking there, I thought of zero trust and wondering if that plays a part um, within this particular framework. I know you mentioned shift left, and I've had some other guests on to kind of break that down and explain it. But is, is zero trust also a part of the paradigm there? Well, it's it's something certainly security professionals are thinking about all of this at the same time, right? So they're thinking about mm -hmm. how do we shift left and get security you know, further into the development pipeline, the development lifecycle. And of course, zero trust, the, the, which again, not a single technology, not an individual, this kind of an ecosystem of, of capabilities really based on, you know, how do we know you are you, right? And assuming you're not probably you and, you know, you've been compromised by some sort of third acting group. And if we think about if we're shifting left or giving developers more and more access to uh, to cloud native environments through integration, staging, and production environments to be able to push code on a faster, faster basis. And they're bringing in third-party code, both commercial and open source, at, as well as developing their own code. Yeah, think about zero trust in that respect, where I can't trust the code being pushed into my environments. And how do I ensure from a zero trust model, I can safe, I can protect myself if code has been compromised? Yeah, I've seen security out there for GitHub, the primary uh, primary repository where developers, you know, store their code and execute their code and just literally do everything from that from that CI/CD pipeline perspective. And it's it's just. A, an area where, you know, I, I think it's growing. And what I want to really find out, though, you mentioned cloud-native approaches and cloud-native workloads. And maybe how, how are those cloud-native approaches creating some of these new security challenges out there that, that you're seeing? Yeah, it, it goes back to that speed. You know, developers, their mantra, where they're incented by the organization is all around speed. You know, faster releases, let's get new features out, new capabilities out. What Cloud Native does, it allows each software team to just own one piece of the pie. So my web front end developers, they can push code to their web front end container without impacting the rest of you know, the, the back end and the middleware, et cetera. So I've got independent teams now able to release on a highly frequent basis as we're putting out new capabilities and new features. And that rate of change, as I have new code, new releases being created, I have 
new containers and new nodes that containers are running on spinning up and spinning down as a result of the, the, the new capabilities that we need to push out that may need new resources. And of course, the, the usage of those resources. So think of all of that change that's occurring. And now as a security person, if something wonky is happening in the environment, one, how do you even know that it is? Is that just expected behavior, or is that truly you know wonky behavior that you need to know about? And then, secondly, how do you decipher what has happened? It, it just creates so much more opportunity to miss things uh, as a result of that that rate of change. Hmm. Okay. And I I am also curious about just protecting workloads at runtime. Like, what exactly does that mean? Because you know, primarily my audience uh, center around storage and backup and recovery and data protection and security and, you know, things like that. But when you when you say runtime, what what exactly does that mean? Why should you protect cloud workloads at, at runtime? Yeah, so it's a really good question. What we've seen in the industry is in that shift left movement, we, you know, a lot of developers focused on vulnerability scanning. You know, I can I can scan my code for known vulnerabilities. I can scan the workload for known vulnerabilities. And I can bring that into my software development process where for, with each step, let's ensure we're scanning, we're checking for known vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. uh, and we can resolve those vulnerabilities as we're moving through the pipeline. That's, that's the goal. Now, right. as we all know, just because you find vulnerabilities doesn't mean you can always patch them. There's lots of you know, reasons why perhaps we can't patch something, might break an application, et cetera. Uh, but but that's that's the the thought process behind it. And even if you do all that extremely well, mm-hmm. if you're not watching, so what runtime means, going back to your question, is what happens when I actually execute the code? Yeah. So that's I'm running the code. That's where the term runtime comes from. And I'm running the code not just in production. I run the code in integration and testing environments. I run the code in staging environments. And then eventually it gets to production. And when I run the code, there is opportunity for compromise to occur at that point in time. Of course, there's zero days. We we all remember Log4j at the beginning of last year, right? You know, a lot of people lost their Christmas last year as they were patching, you know, their their Java uh, to protect themselves from, from Log4j. Uh, and so we've got zero days, we've got supply chain attacks uh, that we just talked about, you know, previously bringing in just compromised code already into your environment uh, because your vendor or that open source tool has been compromised. So there's lots of opportunities, even if you're scanning, to still be at risk. And so run, watching what actually happens at runtime, that's the next part, right? That's the kind of the yin to the yang to ensure that you're fully protected. Okay. That that makes a lot of sense to me, and I, I I've learned that security is a multi-layered approach, and I don't think there's one tool out there on the market that covers every every facet, every yeah, facet, every, right. every entry point. I mean, because security is such a, a a huge and complex topic, and there's many ways that someone can get access to an environment. You have all these different types of cloud platforms. You got, you know, infrastructure as a service platform, SaaS, you know, you have all these different different ways. You have APIs out there. Um, there's just a lot of different places and angles that attackers can kind of get access to your environment. But specifically, Seth, in, in cloud native environments, 
who who are responding to these incidents? Is is it DevOps or is it DevSecOps or is it SecOps? What what is it? <laughs> well, it's it's an excellent question because the the answer, the reality is, it really is different for each organization. There hasn't there isn't a, a specific standard, and I think this has become a bit of a controversial issue as a result of that because mm-hmm. you know as a vendor we. We have an, an advantage because we get to talk to lots of different companies and we see what their approaches are. And with engineering taking on more of this role of scanning for vulnerabilities and understanding the application environment, and when then something weird does happen to the application, well, when it first happens, you don't know if that's a security issue or not. It's it's not like you can immediately uh, you know, dispatch that to who needs to take care of it. So there are these platform engineering teams, platform security teams, or it could be a site reliability engineer that lives inside of engineering. They're responsible for the integrity of that environment. And often it's that individual in the engineering organization who is triaging Mm -hmm. what's happening in these runtime environments. And here's where I believe it gets controversial. I believe that many organizations, the engineering team is keeping the security team at arm's length away from their triage. If you th- think about you know, the opportunity for misconfiguration, you know, with all that change I was talking about, all, you, know, you know, containers flapping up and down and uh, new code being pushed out, new cloud configurations, Kubernetes orchestrating these containers, all this technology is really fairly new, right? We, we weren't using Kubernetes 10 years ago. And so the opportunity for misconfiguration of, of configuring the environment of a code, just bad code being pushed out. It's it, it's so right. And you don't want to have, you have your security team involved every single time. You know, what if you just fat fingered a file? And now, you know, the entire organization, including, you know, lawyers are breathing down your neck to see if there was a breach. So I personally think there's engineering teams that are keeping security at bay and they just have no, very little visibility uh, to these environments or to what's happening until there is a understood exploit that does need the the security team's involvement, but they've now been regulated really to the team of uh, governance and compliance and not security operations. Hmm. Okay. You you mentioned site reliability engineers and it it was a a really big thing a few years ago, SREs. And now it's like, I don't really hear as much about, about them anymore. Is, is that still, has that leveled off? Like, can you explain, I guess, the, the purpose of a site reliability engineer and, and what's their role within an organization? Absolutely. I believe someone, I'm sure one of your listeners is going to correct me. I believe Google coined it. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and they created a definition for it. And site reliability engineer, just as the, the name implies, it's an engineer who's focused in in the development to production environments, ensuring that these environments are conducive Mm -hmm. for development, meaning that your engineers can push code and the environment is set up for new code releases to be pushed out on on a frequent basis. And so that there's configuration on the cloud side, there's configuration on the container side for all that to occur. And when something happens, you probably don't want your top developers stopping to code to figure out what happened. So generally, not always, but generally it's the site reliability engineer, the SRE, 
who's troubleshooting right, what happened here. So that, that becomes, and that's why I spoke to triaging falling to the site reliability engineer on, on them. It's, it's for that reason, uh, because they're really charged with ensuring that the integrity of, of that environment. You, you mentioned containers a couple times as well. Well, and, and Kubernetes is, you know, obviously, I guess one of the hot, one of the hotter ones. I know there's Docker that's out there as well. But when you're talking about containers and kind of getting the most out of these containerized environments, like how do you optimize security for, for containers from your perspective, Seth? So I, I see a new wave of security tools. So there, there was an initial wave of tools for container security, and this is kind of 2015, 2016 timeframe. And they focus specifically just on the container. And what I see now is a, a little bit more of a broader reach. It's not, it's not just to look at the container, but the entire workspace. So I know what's happening at the workload, at the container level, what's happening, the cloud configuration. I have kind of a whole understanding of how these containers are working with each other at a service level. And then inside the container, what's actually happening inside the container. So that mm-hmm. that's a, a new way right. in talking to customers where, where they see the value of that is, is that broader understanding of how, because these things all impact each other. They're all kind of dependent on each other. So having a very, a very specific view to just a container, it, it just creates, a, it's a little too myopic. And so they, they appreciate the, the broader reach. All right. So I, I appreciate that that response and also your insight on that, Seth. Um, do, do you have any horror stories where someone didn't have runtime security in place? Yeah, I'll I'll tell a funny story. I hopefully the customer doesn't mind. I won't I won't name them. Interestingly enough, it's not a security story. It's actually an operation story. Uh, I'll I'll speak to why it impacted the security team. So we went to present to this. They were a prospect at the time, and what we didn't realize was two weeks prior to us presenting to them, they had a cluster, a Kubernetes cluster in production. It just disappeared. And they, so, of course, yeah. alarming, right? So they had the DevOps team, the security team. They had multiple people on both teams investigating this mm-hmm. for over three days. And they finally figure out what happened. And essentially, someone ran a script, mm. which sounds fairly innocent, without realizing if certain criteria was true in that script, it wanted to go basically rebuild the cluster. And so this cluster just disappeared. And without understanding what's actually happening at runtime and how things are connected, you can see how challenging all of a sudden something as simple as the cluster disappeared, who did the cube delete, how difficult it all of a sudden becomes to, to actually track something like that down. It deleted that cluster and renamed it and brought it back up brand new or something? You got it. Exactly. Yeah. Scripts, scripts are dangerous. I, I have some horror stories with, with scripts as well, but we, we won't go into those. And some of those, those stories are kind of remain better untold for, for sure. <laughs> in this, in this format. But it's, it is the reality, right? A lot of these engineers, developers, they're borrowing code, right? They go to stack overflow because they're trying to figure out how to do this one thing. And here's a snippet of code they can grab from Stack Overflow and throw it into their application and then they run it. And if it works, they're like, great. What, if you're not watching what actually happens at runtime, it's, well, the, 
the the code you just brought down, it did the one thing you wanted to, but it also did three, four, or five other things you didn't know it was going to do. And so if you're not watching what actually happens at runtime, those types of things can can happen. And that can create resource overload. You know, I, I didn't realize we're going to be making an API call every four seconds. That was supposed to be every four hours. You know, the, the, you know it could be little things like that. Two, you've left a vulnerability open that uh, a threat actor is going to exploit, take advantage of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and are you following low code and no code at all? Yeah, the, the implication I think there is that it ends up not being your code. You're, you're kind of snipping together someone else's code into the, you know, from fragments into an outcome that you want it to have. And if you don't truly understand what the code does, it could have adverse outcomes that you weren't expecting. And one other funny story I'll say to that, one of our other customers, what they inherited this large Linux environment and there are all these scripts running on cron jobs that because they inherited it, they in you know, a lot of the original authors of these scripts were long gone from the organization. They were going line by line to try to figure out what these scripts do. Well, if you have a solution that's monitoring what happens at runtime, so with SpiderBot, they're able to just, just run the script. And then they can see, oh, this script does X, this script does Y. And so having that observability, that, that ability to see what actually happens when it happens, it just becomes key in these, these hyperdynamic environments. Does it run it in like a sandbox environment or it, run, it runs it in another location so you can see what it's doing? Or? Not, not currently, no. What, what SpiderBat does is fairly interesting. And not, not to get into too much of a commercial for SpiderBat, essentially we're capturing process and network data directly from the Linux kernel. So not trying to interpret a log. And from that, we build a causal map. We know this process started this process. This process opened a network connection. And now we have a complete map of activities from, from the workload itself, which can then be mapped to well, what container did it run in, what pod did it run in. And so we now know what, what happened to what happened. And so it, it's not running in a sandbox, but it is just a factual recording of everything that's happening as it's happening and what has caused what to make it happen. Okay. Fair enough. And one final question for you, um, Seth. What what are you reading? What's on your nightstand? Maybe that you can you can share with some of the listeners here. Yeah. So it, it's I, I haven't I, I love sci fi. I'm, I'm a big uh, William Gibson fan, but I haven't read a lot of fiction in a long time. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction. Okay. Uh, so actually, on my nightstand right now is the Lean Startup. Uh, the Lean Startup. One of the main takeaways I love from it is what's called cohort analysis. You know, so how do you, when, as you have new people using your product, how do you know, you know, from month one to month two to month three, are they getting more and more value? Are they getting stuck in some places? Uh, so that that's what one of the takeaways I, I love from that book and you know, certainly recommend for not just people at startups, but anyone who's building applications, you know, or creating new, new capabilities. I think there's a lot of goodness from from the Lean Startup. Okay. Well, you you have heard from Seth and he's provided you know, all of his insights and, and best practices around, you know, keeping keeping your data safe, especially from a runtime perspective. And oh, also, is there is there any way or would you like any of the listeners to, uh, is it possible for them to reach out to you on social media? Do you want to share any handles? Absolutely, uh, yeah. So at all? I, I recently left Twitter, and so I'm on Mastodon now. Uh, 
Uh, Mastodon, you know what? This the second person I've heard in this week that has yeah, told me that. Yeah, that seems to be the the migration that that uh, people are are making. I'm I'm so called Seth at uh, I'm on the Fostodon, which is the uh, free open source one of the free open source communities in in Mastodon. You can also find me on LinkedIn as Seth Goldhammer. Okay, yeah, I went to the Mastodon site and I was like, you know what? Do I really want to get into this? Because it was like you just can't join. You have to find an open server or a space or something. And I was like, you know what? I don't have time for this right now, but maybe later. <laughs> so. it, no, you're you're totally right. It, it's not Twitter. Just to, it, it's similar to Twitter and it has a lot of the same kind of social interaction as Twitter. But yeah, the, the sign up process and the experience definitely is not, you know, a single click that you would expect from like a, a commercial product. What, what Mastodon is, is you know, think of it, it's almost like the United States, right? It's just, a, a, it's multiple communities that can then be federated into a big community. Okay, got it. I'll, I'll take a look at it and may, maybe I'll sign up and go out there as some wonky, crazy name that's tied to, to my moniker. Um, but once again, thank you so much for taking time out to kind of drop some, some, some nuggets of information around runtime security. And I appreciate you being here on Data Protection Gumbo Set. Demetrius, thanks so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.